Section 33 of Chapters on Evolution by Andrew Wilson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 12 The Evidence from the Life Histories of Insects, Part 2. To follow out in detail the full history of insect metamorphosis would be a task lying far beyond the scope or limits of the present chapter, in which other details of varied developments have yet to be noted. The keynote of metamorphosis and its explanation is struck when the great fact of modification of the young as well as of the adult becomes patent to us. Anything which may be said further regarding metamorphosis is in reality an enlargement and illustration of this thought. But we may, nevertheless, glance briefly at one or two points in connection with the history of insects by way of rendering clear the probable lines along which the production and evolution of metamorphosis has taken place. We have seen that the changes which an insect undergoes have reference not so much to its future form or adult state as to its more immediate wants and to the exigencies of its life when undergoing development. We have noted likewise that the insect, like every other animal, is developed and exists between two sets of conditions, namely, those which tend to keep it in its ancestral grooves, and those which tend to alter its constitution through the influence of new surroundings. Insects are known, further, to pass through every gradation of development, from slight change, limited to the molting of the skin, to that which is illustrated by the dissolution of the larval body and the rebuilding of its frame to form the adult. Is there any information at hand, it may next be asked, which affords us any clue as to the original stock from which the insect type, in all its fullness and variety of form, has been derived? Assuming it to be a probable and consistent view of the case that the mere metamorphosis of insects is a matter which, as already explained, is adaptive and secondary rather than original, what of the parent stock? And what does the study of metamorphosis, closely viewed, teach us concerning that root form? How is it, we may lawfully inquire, that such characteristic features of an insect as its wings and its mouth parts were evolved. It may facilitate our comprehension of these matters if we firstly begin with wings and mouth, and finally direct attention to the probable origin of insects as a whole. There are two main types of mouth in insects, one illustrated by the butterflies and moths, in which all the organs are modified to serve as a sectorial apparatus for drinking up the nectar of flowers, and the other, typically represented in the beetles, where we find a high development of jaws adapted for mastication and prehension. Intermediate between the suctorial and the biting mouth, we find that of the bees and wasps, where jaws coexist with a tongue or proboscis. It may be said, however, that there is but one type of insect mouth, all the forms of this apparatus being merely modifications of the one-type form. Very curious, however, are some of the changes which the mouth parts undergo in the course of their development. For example, a caterpillar begins life as a biting insect and is provided with powerful jaws, a fact which its ravages on leaves fully endorse. Ultimately, as the butterfly, its mouth is wholly suctorial, its chief organ being the long antlia or proboscis used for drinking up the flower juices and, in reality, corresponding with the second pair of jaws in a beetle. There is a clear aid to our thoughts on this matter when we discover that the varied mouths of insects are thus all really built up on one type. Our difficulty, therefore, is not that of accounting for the origin of new structures, 
so much as that of saying how one phase of an organ becomes modeled to form another phase of the same type. An acquaintance with the broad facts of natural history study reveals modifications quite as wonderful in other groups of living beings. It is even more curious to find the arm of man, the wing of the bird, the foreleg of the horse, and the wing of the bat built up on the same type, than to discover a change of type in one and the same insect's mouth in the course of development. If we go back to insects in which the mouth parts are simple and possess jaws of elementary pattern, we may as readily conceive of these jaws becoming altered to form suctorial organs as of the same type of limb being modified in one case to walk and in another to fly. The alteration of ways of life and living and changes in food would be sufficient causes for the modification, which, proceeding slowly and gradually, would in time become naturally repeated in the life history of the race. Or further, as Sir John Lubbock suggests, the young insect might have access to or even be compelled to eat different kinds of food at different periods of its existence. Every variation of mouth has a reference, like the form of larva, to the life and food of its possessor. Is there, after all, any great difficulty in conceiving that the varying forces and conditions, which include in their work the production of very different larvae in even a single group of insects, should have likewise altered and transformed the mouth parts of these animals? In truth, alteration of mouth is simply a part of a transformation which becomes the more wonderful as our view of its scope enlarges. Nor does the consideration of the origin of the insect mouth fail to lead us incidentally to discuss the meaning of the pupa or chrysalis stage. Granting then, says Sir John Lubbock, in speaking of the modification of the biting to form the suctorial mouth, quote, the transition from the one condition to the other, this would no doubt take place contemporaneously with a change of skin. At such times we know that, even when there is no change in form, the softness of the organs temporarily precludes the insect from feeding for a time, as, for instance, in the case of caterpillars. If, however, any considerable change were evolved, this period of fasting must be prolonged and would lead to the existence of a third condition, that of the pupa, intermediate between the two. Since the acquisition of wings is a more conspicuous change than any relating to the mouth, we are apt to associate it with the existence of a pupa state. But the case of the orthoptera, cricket or grasshoppers, is sufficient proof that the development of wings is perfectly compatible with permanent activity. The necessity for prolonged rest is in reality much more intimately connected with the change in the constitution of the mouth, although in many cases, no doubt, this is accompanied by changes in the legs and in the internal organization." Unquote. The same authority expresses the opinion that whilst the biting mouth can be modified to form the suctorial, a change witnessed in every developing moth and butterfly, the originally biting mouth of the beetle could not have been directly modified, contrarywise, to form a sucking apparatus, quote, because the intermediate stages would necessarily be injurious, unquote. More probable is it that both types have sprung from some more primary form of mouth, which partaking of the character of neither has been therefore capable of modification in either direction, quote, by gradual change without loss of utility, unquote. That such a form of mouth united to a body of equally convenient primitiveness is to be found still represented in the ranks of living insects we shall shortly discover. Meanwhile, the question of wings awaits a brief notice. The nature of an insect's wing, discussed in reply to the question, what is it, 
throws some light on the question of its origin. The physiology or use of a wing is, of course, to serve as an organ of flight, but the use or function of an organ may be, and often is, a secondary and adaptive matter, and may be very far from revealing the original condition of the structure in question. Authority in matters entomological assures us that the wings, as appendages of the insect's body, are in reality parts of the animal's breathing system. They contain branches of the breathing tubes and expansions of the blood vessels likewise. Hence, says Packard, quote, the aeration of the blood is carried on in the wings, and thus they serve the double purpose of lungs and organs of flight, unquote. But we must note that many insects are absolutely wingless. The lice, springtails, and fleas, and even the plant lice and neuter ants belonging to winged groups are destitute of these organs. No doubt the wingless condition in the latter cases is to be explained on the theory of disuse causing the disappearance of these organs. But the most primitive insects are without wings, and we may therefore reasonably conclude that wings are not original belongings but late developments of the race. Furthermore, many insects of relatively high rank, such as the crickets, grasshoppers, etc., quit the egg without wings, and this although they are extremely active in every respect. A wingless state is on all grounds, including the evidence of development, to be regarded as the original condition of the insect class. We have seen the intimate connection which exists between the wings and the breathing of insects. Of the two functions, breathing is, of course, much more primary and essential to life than flight. Hence, we may well conclude that as many insects, especially the most primitive, breathe and live without wings, whilst others develop wings and utilize them for breathing as well as for flight, the breathing function, and not that of flying, was the first use to which the earliest insect wings were put. The first beginnings of wings probably existed as we see the thin skin folds of the water-living young of some insects to exist today, that is, as primitive organs adapted for breathing air from water. One singular little water larva, that of Chloion, one of the ephemeridae, or dayflies, possesses side expansions for breathing, which are moved by muscles, as are the wings, and from what is known of other insect larvae inhabiting water, it seems highly probable that a pair of these flat gills to each joint of the body may have originally been developed. The next stage in the evolution of the wing from this side gill, within which, be it noted, the breathing tubes branch out, would consist in these gills being employed as agents of aquatic flight, that is, flight underwater. In time, the hinder gills would alone be devoted to breathing, whilst those of the middle of the body, being the most advantageously placed for locomotion, would become the wings. Probably the first insect wings were used to propel their possessors underwater. Such a state of matters is now seen in Polynema natans, which Sir John Lubbock discovered in 1862. Thereafter, to movements underwater would succeed movements on the surface, and as the muscular developments progressed, the beginnings of aerial flight would be simply a matter of time. The late acquirement of wings in the developing insect of today is thus a fact not without its due significance. Such an event clearly enough shows us, firstly, that flight was a power superadded to insect locomotion long after the evolution of the race from some primitive wingless type, and secondly, that wing power was evolved through the intermediate stage of gills still represented in the water-living larvae of our dayflies and their near kith and kin. As Gegenbauer remarks, 
the wings correspond in nature with the gill processes just described quote, for they do not only agree with them in origin but also in their connection with the body and structure it is quite clear the same authority continues that we must suppose that the wings did not arise as such but were developed from organs which had another function such as the tracheal gills i mean to say that such a supposition is necessary for we cannot imagine that the wings functioned or acted as such in the lower stages of their development and that they could have been developed by having such a function unquote. that this speculation is a highly probable one is proved by the curious fact that one insect Teranarsis regalis, belonging to the Orthoptera, inhabiting damp places, retains its gill-bearing organs throughout life. The mere possibility of the aquatic origin of insects is therefore placed beyond doubt by such an observation, whilst the fact that Teranarsis belongs to the ancient order Orthoptera shows its alliance with a primitive type of the insect class. The consideration of the probable original or type form of the insect class now demands attention. The tyro in natural history knows that insects, along with spiders and scorpions, centipedes and crustaceans, form a great division of the animal world, to which the name of arthropoda, jointed-legged animals, is given. The latter group in its turn forms a division of the great articulate type, of which group the possession of a jointed body, seen equally well in the insect's body, in the centipede's frame, or in the lobster's tail, is a chief characteristic. Now the origin of the arthropoda from some lower and worm-like stock is not a matter which involves any very great draft upon the speculative faculty. From some such stock the tribes of spiders, insects, crustaceans, and centipedes have probably originated. There exists, indeed, a curious animal known as Peripetus, which is in many respects entitled to be considered as a primitive arthropod. From some such form as Peripetus, it is not improbable that at least the insects, centipedes, and spiders were evolved. We have discussed in a previous chapter the nature of the form which has probably, through its evolution and development, given origin to the crustacean hosts and legions. This form is the Nopleus which in the development of highest and lowest crustaceans alike reappears as the root and stock of the class, and whose modifications form the puzzles of the philosophical naturalist of modern times. Now what is so clear in the case of the crustacea is well nigh as patent in the history of insects. We certainly do possess in existing groups of insects forms which appear to fulfill the conditions incidental to the purpose of serving as a generalized type from which insect evolution may have taken place. Such groups are those known as the Thysanura, or tough-tailed insects, and the Columbola of Lubbock, both of which orders may be found on examination to present us with the natural rootstock of higher insects. A brief inquiry into the characters of these latter insects may appropriately bring this chapter to a close. Professor Huxley, in a recent Manual of Comparative Anatomy, speaks of the cockroach as an insect without metamorphosis, a fact already noticed, and remarks upon the obvious difference which exists between such a form as a butterfly with its resting chrysalis and the young cockroach active throughout its whole development. It is obvious, continues Huxley, quote, that a metamorphosis in this sense, for example the butterfly or moth, is a secondary complication superinduced upon the direct and gradual process of development exhibited by such insects as the cockroach. Unquote. 
It is also laid down as an axiom of zoology that insects which, like butterflies, undergo a complete metamorphosis, are more differentiated and better specialized, in a word, are the products of a higher phase of evolution, than those which undergo no metamorphosis. So also we are duly warned that insects, quote, which never possess wings, are less differentiated or more embryonic than those which are winged. And finally, insects with the parts of the mouth in the condition of ordinary nathites, or jaws, are less differentiated than those in which such nathites are changed in form and function or become confluent, unquote. Now, on this view of matters, a butterfly is bound to be regarded, as we have seen on the grounds of its development, as a highly modified insect, far removed from the primitive type. On the other hand, quote, the insects which, in this view of their morphological relatives, occupy the lowest position in the group are the columbola and thysanura, unquote. To these, we may perhaps add the true lice and bird lice, malophaga, because these also undergo no metamorphosis and possess no wings. What, then, are these columbola and thysanura, in whose personnel and development we may expect to find the primitive form of the insect type? The thysanura, of which the lapisma and campodia are good examples, are small insects living in dark situations, such as amongst damp moss and under stones. The body is either hairy or, as in the lapisma, covered with minute scales, which constitute objects used for testing the defining powers of microscopes. On the whole, the thysanura very closely resemble the young of the cockroach. The tail or abdomen is composed of some ten segments and bears paired appendages from seven to nine in number. They possess breathing tubes, but as already remarked, want wings and exhibit no metamorphosis. The columbola differ from the preceding group in possessing a tail consisting of six joints only, and a curious tube or sucker by the viscid secretion of which they attach themselves to fixed objects. Their popular name of springtails, derived from the presence of appendages formed on a spring and catch principle, and by means of which they are enabled to take leaps of considerable extent, indicates another peculiarity of the group. Only in one genus of the columbola, likewise, are breathing tubes found. The jaws or nathites in Campodia and columbola are not very markedly developed. As Sir J. Lubbock remarks, the jaws, quote, are far from strong, but still have some freedom of motion and can be used for biting and chewing soft substances, unquote. Of these lower insects, the genus Campodia is particularly interesting, inasmuch as it seems to combine in its person all the primitive characters which give to its neighbors their extreme interest in the eyes of naturalists. Campodia, which occurs in loose damp earth, has an elongated cylindrical body, long and many-jointed antennae, with paired appendages on the first seven joints of its tail, and long tail appendages likewise. Now, if we compare the young or larva of Campodia with the adult, we find little or no difference save in size. Its whole organization reminds us forcibly of the young stage in such insects as the cockroaches and other orthoptera. Whilst there are larvae in other groups of insects to which Campodia and its neighbors bear a close resemblance. Furthermore, the larva of the dayfly, Coleon, which possesses the gill appendages already referred to, is exceedingly like this Campodia, whose mouth parts appear equally capable of further development to form the jaws of the beetle or of modification to become the suctorial apparatus of the butterfly. 
thus on all grounds on which it is possible or necessary to look for resemblances between compodia and the young of higher insects such likenesses are discoverable and the conclusion is thus rendered highly probable that existing insects have been evolved from an ancient campodia like stock that is from an animal form with a jointed body three pairs of legs weak mouth parts one pair of feelers and a tail provided with jointed appendages hence a mental forecast is prepared to see an insect like the young coleon or the water larvae already described with their side gills into winged and higher races or in another direction and through less modification perhaps we may in our mind's eye behold campodia growing in time into the stock whence the orthoptera are existing crickets grasshoppers and locusts themselves a primitive group of insects have sprung backwards on the other hand in the scale retrograding from campodia we may even conceive of the stock from which that insect itself has sprung campodia within the egg must pass through the stages common to all animals at a like stage of development there is a stage in the arthropod type when the young of the insect or crustacean is little else than a footless imperfectly developed worm there is even a worm-like larva of an insect allied to the gnats which corresponds to such a description and such low insect larvae become in turn obviously related in form to certain low creatures allied to the worm kith and kin one of these low forms is lindia this legless organism is related to the well-known bear animalcules and rotifers or wheel animalcules its jaws resemble those of the larval flies it has a ringed body and in other respects exhibits a close likeness to the young of many insects possibly therefore in some such primitive root common to a whole host of animals we may find the dim ill-defined starting point whence led towards parapetus and by campodia the insect tribes have grown into the brilliance and aerial grace which mark their ranks today it may not be unprofitable at the close of our investigation into insect history to remind ourselves of the great problem which their development has lent its aid in part to solve at the risk of apparently unnecessary repetition let us keep in view that every such history however its individual terms are to be accounted for forms a link of greater or less importance in demonstrating the great law of evolution modification and adaptation as the true method whereby nature has wrought out the endless variety of the children of life especially useful and important moreover is the history of the insect as illustrating the changes which the adaptation and modification of the young form may effect in the history of a species so far from the chrysalis or pupa being a stage in the ancestry of the insects we have seen that it represents merely a secondary and acquired phase of their development as fritz muller has succinctly formulated it quote, the historical record preserved in developmental history is gradually effaced as the development strikes into a constantly straighter course from the egg to the perfect animal and it is frequently sophisticated by the struggle for existence which the free-living larvae have to undergo unquote. these words sum up the reason why insects in their metamorphoses exhibit all gradations and shades from mere molting of skin to complete change of form through a chrysalis state primarily they undergo a metamorphosis because they happen to leave the egg at a relatively early period of development but they share metamorphosis using the word in the broad sense with every other living being 
it is this plainly discerned series of changes which has chiefly given to the study of entomology its fascination in the past one may however well be regarded as enunciating a veritable truth when it is stated that the new light which evolution throws on the why and how a butterfly develops and a compodia remains inert is likely to invest insects and indeed all other forms of life with an interest far surpassing that which past years could have imagined or conceived end of section thirty three chapter twelve the evidence from the life histories of insects part two